Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I have no comments today. Hopefully, we'll be getting some in soon from our last program. Uh, but uh, again, listeners, it's, uh, it's my job to feed you. It's your job to write back. Anyway, just get those comments back in here. Well, on our last podcast, we began discussing when Marlowe finally meets Kurtz in Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. Now, however, we only got as far as Marlowe's defense of Kurtz prior to telling the story of when he met him. Now, for today's program, I want to begin actually to discuss the story of when Marlowe finally meets Kurtz. So, so I, I did really kind of fool you last time, but again, hopefully it kept your interest. Now, so back with me in the studio today is my partner in literature and my sweet wife. Welcome back, Deborah. Hello again. And back with me also is one of my former English literature students, and he's also my personal assistant. That's Gabe Greaser. Welcome back, Gabe. (laughs) Thanks. Great to be back. All right. Now, we may actually need an additional program to finish this program. (laughs) Now, of course, all of your listeners out there should be reading and thinking about this incredible novella. There is so much that can be said that we likely won't ever have time to say but certainly we can point you in the right direction. So now remember of all things, Joseph Conrad wants you to think deeply about what he has written for us. So today we're gonna move to book three. And uh, this is actually when they arrive at the interstation. Now, essentially, um, uh, when we get to the interstation, who is the first person that he actually meets? The Russian. The Russian, <laughs> right. So, so essentially, we're on page 95. And uh, uh, let's talk about the Russian for a while. I know both of you can do it, because you've read this. How is he dressed? He's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's dressed like a jester, or a, you know, a court jester. So, so but, but what, what, there, what is there about him that's, that's amazing? He's, well, he is dressed like, like he talk, thinks of a harlequin, you know, which is a court jester. So he has all different colors, and it's it's amazing um, the the way he's dressed that way. Um, but he seems he seems like he's very positive, positive about yeah. Kurtz. About he's, Kurtz, yes, he's, he's like totally yes. sold on Kurtz. Yes, and he knows he he knows that Kurtz has his problem, but but if you notice it, he really defends Kurtz. I mean. Uh, in the last program, we could see that that um, Marlowe was defending Kurtz, you know, before he even tells us how he meets him, and then here we have, you know, this uh, this Harlequin, and uh, I'll just read you, you know, a part of the, this the the middle of page ninety five, just a part of this. He says his aspect reminded me of something I'd seen, something funny I'd seen somewhere. As I maneuvered to get alongside, I was asking myself. What does this fellow look like? Suddenly I got it. He looked like a harlequin. 
His clothes had been made of some stuff that was brown holland, probably, but it was covered with patches all over, with bright patches, blue, red, and yellow, patches on the back, patches on the front, patches on the elbows, on knees, colored binding around his jacket, scarlet edging at the bottom of his trousers, and the sunshine made him look extremely gay and wonderfully neat withal, because you could see how beautifully all this patching had been done. A beardless boyish face, very fair, no features to speak of, nose peeling, little blue eyes, smiles and frowns chasing each other over that open countenance like sunshine and shadow on a windswept plain. He goes on, Look out, Captain, he cried. There's a snag lodge in there last night. And, and of course, uh, that would drive Marlowe crazy. What, another snag? And uh, so, so he goes on, and essentially what, what Marlowe says, Are we in time? And if, if you've read the book, you know that they think Mar- that, uh, that Kurt is already dead. And what he's asking the, the Russian, hey, are we in time? Is he still alive? Because he wants to um, you know, make sure that he gets to meet him. And so, so I, I do think it's interesting that even as Kurtz gets to the shore, here's someone that really wants to al- you know, already just defend the guy. And uh, you know, uh, Marlowe hasn't even you know, met him yet. At the very bottom of page 96, um, the, f- the first thing he wants is, is tobacco. I guess you know, things are really kind of scarce there at the interstation. And notice what Marlowe says. It says, The pipe soothed him, and gradually I made out he had run away from school, had gone to sea in a Russian ship, ran away again, served some time in English ships, was now reconciled with the archpriest. He made a point of that, but when uh, one is young, one must see things, gather experience, ideas, enlarge the mind. Here I interrupted. You can never tell. Here I met Mr. Kurtz, he said, youthfully solemn and reproachful. I held my tongue after that. It appears he had persuaded a Dutch trading house on the coast to fit him out with stores and goods and had started for the interior with a light heart no more idea of what would happen to him than a baby. He had been wandering about the river for nearly two years alone, cut off from everybody and everything. I am not so young as I look. I am 25, he said. At first, old Van Schooten would tell me to go to the devil. He never ate with keen enjoyment, but I stuck to him and talked and talked till at last he got afraid I would talk the hind leg off his favorite dog. So he gave me some cheap things and a few guns and told me he hoped he would never see my face again. Good old Dutchman Van Schooten. I've seen him, uh, um, I've sent him one small lot of ivory a year ago so that he can't call me a little thief when I get back. I hope he got it and for the rest I don't care. I had some wood stacked for you. That was my old house, did you see? And so, so you know, here um, Conrad had run into him but didn't know it was the Russian. And, of course, then when you get into book three, then they begin to talk about, about Kurtz. And he said uh, uh, he's very concerned because he knows that Kurtz is really sick. This is the, then we just move into book three, and it says, um, I, I went a little further, he said, till I still, and still, then still a little further till I had gone so far that I don't know how ever I'll get back. Never mind, plenty of time I can manage. You take Kurtz away quick, quick, I tell you. The glamour of youth enveloped his party-colored legs, rags, excuse me, his destitution, his loneliness, the essential desolation of his futile wanderings. For months, for years, his life 
hadn't been worth a day's purchase. And there he was, gallantly, thoughtlessly alive to all appearance, indestructible solely by the virtue of his few years and unreflecting audacity. And so, so essentially, who saved him? Who saved the Russian? I mean, he's out there by himself. Well, Kurtz did. Kurtz did. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so he's absolutely enthralled with Kurtz because Kurtz really, you know, he, he's not saving a native. <laughs> he's saving a Russian. So, all right, Gabe. Yeah, you can see that even just on a couple pages earlier, he's talking about, um, I think Marla was asking this Russian guy, like, if he ever talks to Kurtz. And the Russian says, like, no, you don't talk to Kurtz. You just listen to him. So mm-hmm. I think he's somewhat enamored by Kurtz and um, thinks that Kurtz has a lot to offer to him. Uh, specifically a lot that he can learn from from Kurtz right right well I, you know in some ways that's probably true I mean it's it's the the it's the end and I think maybe that's what what Marlowe's trying to say and probably Carl uh, um, Conrad is even saying it's it's the, he ended up bad but he did have well he could paint he had a lot of good qualities to start with right. yes mm-hmm. right and uh, yes you know, mm-hmm. and so, but it's it's like, this is what happens when you start playing with what darkness, mm-hmm. and that's that's what Conrad is getting at, I think, with this whole with this whole thing. Anyway, I I, I just think it's interesting that um, you know <laughs> he meets the Russian, and hopefully all of you out there really pay attention and read this whole section on the on the the Russian because I know it um, uh, it really does get people well how did. How did, how did Conrad come up with this idea, you know? And so, so was it part of his what he saw himself, what Conrad saw himself? But, uh, but I know there are some people that just totally mystifies them, and they said they've come to me and say, "Okay, explain the Harlequin to me. <laughs> what, what is he doing there?" And so, so, uh, uh, but, but then when you, if you really understand a little bit of the story, you could see how, um, you know, this guy is. Uh, you know, he he was out to be a seaman and it didn't work out. But why he dresses as a harlequin, I don't know if I could answer that. <laughs> I think we'd have to ask. Carl and he, it seems like Conrad. he's it seems like he's clean as well. It's not just messy. Oh no, right? he's, yeah, he yeah. seems like he's clean and neat. You know, yeah. he looks like he's yeah. kind of someone who kind of may be attractive to see. Somehow it's kind yeah. of funny in the middle of the the, the uh, jungle like that. <laughs> yeah. All right, but then then we finally meet. Kurtz, and for you guys, it's page eighty-nine in the Bantam, and uh, we'll, we'll just skip ahead, page one hundred four. So, how do we meet? How do we meet, Mister Kurtz? It's just totally amazing. He's they bring him in. And remember now, the Russian gives us indication the guy's really sick. So, right. Well, how do they bring him in, Gabe? He's basically on a stretcher. He's <laughs> dying. He's sick and. Probably not what Marlo was expecting to see when he meets Kurtz. Right, right. So, so uh, you know, for all the talk, there's been the voice. There's all this, you know, and uh, they hear the guy. Uh, the guy is sick, and notice that that someone says, "Well, doesn't the name Kurtz mean short person?" <laughs> 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 yeah, we just we had a social recently, and then they they. Uh, did the song I guess it was an entertainment night they did the choir did a song about short people mm-hmm. I thought that was rather offensive myself <laughs> since I'm sh- I'm shrinking 
I've shrunk a half inch mm -hmm. in my older years. So, uh, so anyway, but uh, uh, again, who else is there with them on this with the stretcher? It's just, it's just amazing to me. You know. Oh, so only I did my reading, huh? <laughs> well, well, he, well, he's brought in on, on a stretcher with, by, by his, by the the native, um, you know, uh, supporters. The native tribes, but they're yeah. armed. Yes, they're mm -hmm. armed. They're, they, you know, these uh, these are soldiers. These are native soldiers. So, so uh, you know, we do know that he has uh, really, uh, really taken the lead there. I mean, he's like, well, he's really like their god, like the pamphlet mm -hmm. said. You know, they're supernatural. He's like, he's a supernatural deity, and so. Uh, uh, you know, he, he, he's got armed natives. Uh, you know, he's he's really very sick, and uh, um, uh, I'm just going to read there at the at the um, top of page 104, and it would be the top of your page one, uh, page 89. It, it goes on. He says, uh, um, "How does it say there?" Uh, over in the previous, uh, the very, very bottom, it says, there hasn't been a drop of medicine or a mouthful of in, in, invalid food for months here. He was shamefully abandoned. A man like this with such ideas, shamefully, shamefully, I, I haven't slept for the last ten nights. His voice lost itself in the calm of the evening. The long shadows of the forest had slipped downhill while we talked and had gone far beyond the ruined hovel, beyond the symbolic row of stakes. All this was in the gloom while... We're down there, yet in the sunshine, in the stretch of the dower, with a murky and overshadowed bend above the, above and below. Not a living soul was seen on the shore. The bushes did not rustle. And then notice it says, Suddenly around the corner of the house a group of men appeared, as though they had come up from the ground. They waded waist-deep in the grass. In a compact body bearing an impoverished, improvised stretcher, in their midst, instantly in the emptiness of the landscape, a cry arose whose shrillness pierced the still air like a sharp arrow flying straight in the very heart of the land. And as if by enchantment, streams of human beings, of naked human beings, with spears in their hands, with bows, with shields, with wild glances, and savage movements were poured into the clearing by the dark-faced and pensive forest. The bushes shook, the grass swayed for a time, and then everything stood still in attentive immobility. Now, notice this. It says, now if, if he does not say the right thing to them, we're all done for, said the Russian at my elbow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so he's come back to the station, but he's got an army with him. And so, uh, so the, the Russian knows a lot about, about him. The knotted men with the stretcher had stopped, too, halfway to the steamer, as if petrified. I saw the men on the stretcher sit up, lank and with an uplifted arm above the shoulders of the bearers. Let us hope the man who can talk so well of love in general will find some particular reason to spare us this time, I said. I resented bitterly the absurd danger of our situation, as if to be at the mercy of that atrocious phantom had been dishonoring necessity. So, so to me, now Marlowe meets him, and what does he think? <clears throat> well, it's kind of interesting because before that he had high esteem of him, and now he's calling him a, a you know, a, an atrocious, atrocious phantom. <laughs> yeah, because he could lose his life now. <laughs> yes, and he resents the fact that he could lose his life because of this man. Um, they're really at his mercy, right? At that point. 
Uh, he goes mm -hmm. on then to say, I could not hear a sound, but through my glasses I saw the thin arms extended commandingly, the lower jaw moving, the eyes of that apparition shining darkly, far in its, in its bony head that nodded with grotesque jerks. Kurtz, Kurtz, that means short in German, don't it? <laughs> well, the name was true as everything else in his life, and death. He looked at least seven feet long, his covering had fallen off, and his body emerged from it pitiful and appalling as from a winding sheet. I could see the cage of his ribs all astir, the bones of his arms waving. It was though an animated image of death, carved out of old ivory, had been shaking its hand with menaces at, motion, at a motionless crowd of men made of dark and glittering bronze. I saw him open his mouth wide. It gave him a weirdly voracious aspect, as though he had wanted to swallow all the air, all the earth, all the men before him. A deep voice reached me faintly. He must have been shouting. He fell back suddenly. The stretcher shook as bearers staggered forward again, and almost at the same time I noticed that the crowd of savages was vanishing without any perceptible movement of retreat, as if the forest had ejected these beings so suddenly had drawn them in again as the breath is drawn in a long aspiration. Right. It's good writing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So, so what do you think he thinks of Kurtz now, besides what you just said before? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. Some of the images he uh, that he writes, the way Conrad writes, he talks about the, um, like he's old ivory, you know, the animated image of old ivory shaking his hand. And then, but then with the, the men are dark, glittering bronze, you know, some of the colors, you know, just, I think it's interesting to, yeah. to see that when he writes about it. Yeah, so um, like it's, the, the it's old, picture. worn out ivory. Or, yes, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and what wore him out. Mm-hmm was the ivory yes right 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 so so anyway it's 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 not like uh um you know the russians said the voice you know talked about all this where is all that it's gone you know and so uh so i i do think that you know um uh if you go back to what we said in the you know the previous program um he was defending him to the to the four his four friends on the nelly but now now that we hear the story what was he defending? There was just a, well, it's, it's like a phantom, or like a piece of old ivory, you know. And so, so it, it, to me, it is amazing that that even now you have to wonder about when he lied to the intended. That he's really he's really keeping everything hidden, but but he's not telling the truth at all, you know. So, so anyway, um, uh, notice he goes on. This is just the next page over. It says. Some of the pilgrims behind the stretcher carried his arms, two, uh, meaning not his arm arms, <laughs> meaning his, his weapons, two shotguns, a heavy rifle, and a light revolver carbine, the thunderbolts of that pitiful Ju Jupiter. So, so can you imagine? So, so now, now he's going on, and he's saying, okay, he's like a god to these people, but now he's like Jupiter, and he's got these, uh, you know, these are his thunderbolts. So he's comparing him to a, you know, like this, uh, uh, you know, pagan god. It says, the manager bent over him, murmuring as he walked beside his head. They laid him down in one of those little cabins, 
just a room for a bed place and a camp stool or two, you know. We had brought his belated correspondence and a lot of torn envelopes and open letters littered his bed. His hand roamed feebly amongst these papers. I was struck by the fire of his eyes and the composed languor of his expression. It was not so much the exhaustion of disease. He did not seem in pain. The shadow looked satiated and calm as though for a moment it had its fill of all the emotions. So, so again, I mean, again, that's, that's great writing by Conrad, but, but look at this guy. I mean, he, he is, you know, you could almost see he's someone that you could be drawn to. You know, I, I know when I was in college, there were the, there'd be these professors that, I mean, some of them were just a little goofy, but students were drawn to them. Yeah, there was something about their personalities. So, uh, so anyway, any comments? Any more comments? Well, he, even though he is really weak, there is fire in his eyes. So he still has the fire in his eyes and um, the, the languor of his expression, which is really kind of a pleasant kind of uh, tiredness. Um, you know, but um, it's not so much the exhaustion of disease he didn't seem in pain. It's like it's kind of interesting that even though he is really sick, it's it's something about his his demeanor and his look. He looked um, calm, as if he's been through all all the emotions. <laughs> so you can yeah. imagine all the evil and the good and the evil and everything. So it's yeah. it's interesting the way it's written. It is. Mm-hmm. It, it is amazing. Now, guess who comes mm-hmm. back? The manager, his manager <laughs> of the station. Notice uh, this is pa- page one hundred five for me. Uh, I think for for both of you, it would be around um, uh, 94, 95, I guess. What page are you on there, dear? It might be 91. There's a manager. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It says, the manager appeared silently in the doorway. I stepped out at once, and he drew the Mm -hmm. curtain after me. The Russian, eyed curiously by the pilgrims, was staring at the shore. I followed the direction of his glance. Dark human shapes could be made out in the distance, flitting indistinctly against the gloomy border of the forest, and near the river, two bronze figures leaning on two, spa- two on tall spears stood in the sunlight under fantastic headdresses of spotted skins, warlike and still in ta- statuesque response. And guess who shows up? <clears throat> the mistress. The mistress. Yes, who we talked about last time, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, not last time, two times ago. Two yes. times ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... and mm-hmm. uh, the next and so so there's this there's this whole thing happening where you know they've they want him back the company wants him back in Europe and yet you have the natives now they they bring him but they really don't want to let him go and and she she um, she steps into the picture and of course we read this a couple of programs ago but I'll just read one line there it says she was savage and superb Wild-eyed and magnificent, there was something ominous and stately in her deliberate progress. And in the hush that had fallen suddenly upon the whole sorrowful land, the immense wilderness, the colossal body of the fecund and mysterious life, seemed to look at her, pensive, as though it had been looking at the image of its own tenebrous and passionate soul. So, so anyway, she comes to the steamer. And uh, the manager says, if she had stepped on it, he would have killed her. <laughs> you know, so so obviously, uh, you know, the natives do not want Kurtz to go anywhere. They don't want him to leave. You know, and uh, 
uh, remember, Kurtz, uh, Kurtz at this point also realizes he's sick. And then uh, on about page 107 in my book, about 93 or 94 in yours, I said, at this moment, I heard Kurt's deep voice behind the curtain. Save me. Save the ivory. Ivory, you mean. Don't tell me. Save me. Why, I've had to save you. You are in interrupting my plans now. Sick, sick. Not so sick as you would like to believe. Never mind. I'll carry my ideas out yet. I will return. I'll show you what can be done. You, with your little peddling notions, you're interfering with me. I will return. I... And so, so uh, notice the manager comes back out, and uh, he's talking. Now, now, remember now, Marlowe's listening to all this. Says the manager came out. He did me the honor to take me under the arm and lead me aside. He said he's very low, very low. He said he considered it necessary to sigh, but neglected to be consistently sorrowful. We have done all we could for him, haven't we? But there is no disguising the fact. Mr. Kurtz has done more harm than good to the company. He did not seem the time was not ripe for vigorous action. Cautiously, cautiously, that's my principle. We must be cautious yet. The district is closed to us for a time. So essentially, what, what's going on there? What do you see is going on there? The company's view of Kurtz. Well, I think at this point they see him as like he's not bringing in what they want him to bring in. He's not uh, contributing enough to the company that he's, um, you know, he's sick at this time and he hasn't done as much good as they had hoped that, that he would. He's kind of just turned into this recluse in the middle of the jungle, just taking the ivory for himself. Right. Right. And so essentially he's saying, we're not doing anything else for him medically. Let him die. I mean, that's, that's essentially what they're saying is, here, Marlowe spent all this time to get there, and as far as they're concerned, they just want him to die. I have a question. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> what is? Uh, you see where the manager said something about look at how pre- precarious the position is and why? Because the method is unsound. And then, and Marlowe says, "Do you?" said I, looking at the shore. Call it unsound method. So what do you what? And then he says, "Without doubt, don't you know method at all?" I murmured. So what? What does that mean, the method? What do you think? I, th- mm-hmm. I, I think it probably has to do with the method that he was getting mm-hmm. ivory. And mm-hmm. remember, they did not like what they called fossil ivory. Mm. And essentially what he was doing, mm-hmm. he was stealing from the natives because they would take their, the ivory they'd get, they'd bury. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to hide it. But, but you know, in, in some ways, mm-hmm. we have to figure out or have to understand mm-hmm. that Curse was actually a thief. He was yes. actually stealing from the natives. Mm-hmm. And, and you can imagine mm-hmm. he's got mm-hmm. this whole army of natives around him. Why? Well, it's to protect him from other natives. That they, you know, I could see them raiding villages, stealing other natives, you know, ivory. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's just my own speculation. But, but uh, you know, um, if you really go back to King Nicholas at the time, I don't think he cared how they got the ivory, as long as he got the ivory. And I think. Mm-hmm. You know, here you, mm-hmm. now, I don't know if this is the previous manager mm-hmm. that was on the ship, or if, if this or did the manager come with them. You know, I don't know. I'd have to go back and really prove that through because they're at another station, and I guess they're they're actually at um, Kurtz's station. So I think the manager did go on the ship with them, 
but he doesn't care. He wants him dead, you know, because he doesn't want him to get his job anyway. And so, so uh, uh, you know, it, I, I think that's what that has everything to do with. Um, if, if you go on there, um, he goes on to say, this is um, an unsound method. But he appeared, he appeared confounded for a moment. It seemed to me I had never breathed an atmosphere so vile and I turned mentally to Kurtz for the relief, positive for relief. Nevertheless, I think Mr. Kurtz... So this is what then Marlowe says to the manager. Nevertheless, I think Mr. Kurtz is a remarkable man, I said with emphasis. He started, dropped me on a cold, heavy glance, and said very quietly, he was. And he <laughs> turned his back on me. He said, my hour of favor was over. <laughs> I found myself lumped with Kurtz as a partisan of methods for the time which was not ripe. I was unsound, uh, but it was something to have at least a choice of nightmares. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's really kind of, um, you know, fascinating there. But uh, anyway, the, the uh, manager didn't like Kurtz, and he didn't like Marlowe, no. So um, I, I do think it, it um, if we go to page 108, um, maybe we can kind of uh, work at concluding this quickly. It says, I had turned to the wilderness, wilderness, really, not to Mr. Kurtz, who I was ready to admit was as good as buried. And for a moment it seemed to me as if I were buried in a vast grave full of unspeakable secrets. I felt an intolerable weight impressing on my breast, the smell of the damp earth, the unseen presence of victorious corruption, the darkness of an impenetrable night. And so... So you, I, I think the thing that we could say there for sure is that uh, even though Kurtz and Marlowe finally meet, Marlowe is oppressed by the, by the meeting. He's not helped by the meeting. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Uh, you can buy Heart of Darkness at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And the reason I'm saying that, if you have not read the book, you still need to read it. Now, you may also be able to find a good copy at your local bookstore, or, and of course, you can also check your local library. Now, it's so much better that you find a copy of Lord Jim for yourself, because we'll be starting to, uh, to uh, read that in just a few weeks. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.